and to get to bring the Word of God as we preach through this short series that we're doing on prayer and the things that keep us from, from getting into prayer. If any of you are anything like me, you may have a number of, of, of reasons, of obstacles or excuses that you find come up when, you're, when you feel like you need to, to spend some time with the Lord, things that arise that just keep you from getting there. Some of them are deeper theological issues, uh, which a number of which are, we're, we're addressing throughout this series. So things that come to mind for me are things like that feeling that if God knows everything, why should I pray? He knows it anyway. But a lot of them are, are a little bit maybe more superficial. So a common one that I find is feeling like I don't have time. There's too much other stuff to do. But to be honest with you, at the bottom of the superficial excuses, there's usually something else for me. You know, I, I, you've heard the expression, you make time for what's important for you. Um, if the Red Sox were in the World Series, for example, you would find time to watch it if the Red Sox were important to you. Uh, but often we have these superficial excuses that we, that we come up with that seem to keep us from prayer. I would argue that often underneath those superficial reasons, there's often something deeper going on. In my life and in a lot of the conversations that I've found as we've explored this a little bit more, um, a, a really common deeper level issue that keeps us from, from getting to the Lord in prayer is a sort of a deep down feeling of guilt, of inadequacy or unworthiness, just a feeling that God doesn't want to hear from me. Maybe it's because of a single um, bigger issue that's happened or just sort of a more general sense of, of, of just unworthiness to be before God, but it becomes this barrier that keeps you from pressing into a sweet time of prayer with God. As I preach to you this morning, that's the obstacle that I'll be addressing today. But before we, we go there, let's, let's, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Holy Lord God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to stand in your presence before these people today, to hear from your word and to be shaped by your word. God, as I preach, I pray and ask that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be present among us. God, I pray that you would enliven your word in our hearts, both as it, as it comes through my mind and through my mouth and as it reaches the, the ears and the hearts of the hearers. God, bring your word to life. Transform us by your word as it penetrates to the deep down parts of our hearts and our lives. God, we thank you so much for the privilege that we can come before you in prayer, that we can hear from your word. So we begin by praising you and thanking you for these things in the perfect and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. A few months ago, actually before I even found out that I was going to be preaching this sermon, uh, there was a day, a, a weekday morning, I was in my office and I was trying to start my day in prayer. I had my door shut. It's something I try to do. But as I sat at my desk, I found that my mind was wandering and it was going back to a scene that reoccurred fairly frequently throughout my adolescence. A few of you know that I didn't actually go to school from first grade to 12th grade. I was educated at home by my, by my parents. And one of the unique things with homeschooling is that as a student, you can have a little bit of a higher degree of autonomy than, than maybe you might in, in, in a classroom, depending on how, how the family chooses to structure the system. My parents really lean towards that autonomy uh, end of the spectrum. My brother and sister were both very independent, very diligent, hard workers, very driven, so it worked really well for them. And the way it kind of functioned, at the beginning of the week, my dad would sit down with each one of us, we'd set up our goals for the week, and then it, you know, he'd go off to work and mom would do mom stuff, and it was really up to us to get done what we needed to get done during the course of the week. So like I said, that worked really well for my brother and my sister. 
It didn't work so good for me. I, I didn't have that drive. And often the way my day would unfold, I'd sit down at the desk uh, with this you know, stack of books and a list of what I needed to get done for the day. But within about 30 minutes of that first lesson, my mind was not on math or science or English or whatever. It was strategizing ways that I could get out of the house to go do something other than school. And I got pretty good at it. The problem was, Dad came home at the end of the day. And often, I can remember repeatedly nights where we would be sitting in the living room, maybe it was just even my dad and me watching the news or whatever, and I was afraid of this question. I was afraid that he'd say, Brent, how was school today? Did you get everything done? Because I knew I couldn't give an honest answer, yes. I didn't want to have to go back upstairs and, and, and dig into the books, so I came up with these systems, things like not looking him in the eyes, not talking to him. I even got to where I thought that as long as I don't think about school, he won't think about school. So, and I believe that. So, so anyway, a, a few months ago, as I'm sitting in my office trying to press into a time of prayer, I realized that the feeling in my heart towards God was similar to the feeling in my heart throughout those years of school towards my dad. When I was a student at home and I would, you know, I would be in the same room with my dad, I knew that he loved me, but I had this feeling of guilt of unmet expectations. I knew that I, that I had, had failed to live up to the things he and I agreed I needed to do, and I didn't want to deal with it, to be honest. I didn't feel like I could deal with it. I was afraid of what it would look like for me to deal with it, so I avoided him. I've realized that there are times when I actually do that in my prayer life, too, where there's a, a feeling of guilt, of unmet expectations, of inadequacy, of insufficiency, that keeps me from having a free, open time of prayer with God, my Father, of being able to look Him in the eyes, of being able to address Him by His name. Sometimes it's one big thing that I'm aware of in my life, maybe one major area of sin that has just repeatedly hammered me where I've just failed over and over. More often, it's just a cumulative sense of, of, of inadequacy, insufficiency. Ironically, I think probably most oftenly, most often what it is is feeling like I don't pray enough. I can't go before God because I've failed to meet my own goals for prayer for the week or the standard that I've set for myself. And it ends up becoming this sort of self-perpetuating cycle. I wonder if any of you can relate to that feeling at all. If any of you have been there before as you've tried to press into prayer with God. If you're in the boat with me on this issue this morning... I hope that you receive grace and hear freedom from the gospel through the words of Hebrews chapter 10 as we press into that passage. Before we get there, though, I want to talk about where that instinct of guilt, where that feeling that the burden of your sin keeps you from accessing the fullness of, of God's grace, of entering boldly into his throne, and where that feeling comes from. I want to argue that it's a natural part of you that's actually supposed to be there. If you were to take a look through the Old Testament, you would find that this feeling is not original to you. There's strong precedent for it. In fact, I would say that the earliest record of our earliest ancestors bears testimony to this feeling. I would even go so far as to say that it is the first felt consequence of the first sin. Think back to Adam and Eve. After they shared in the forbidden fruit in the garden, uh, you know, they were scheduled to have some face-to-face -face time with God. He was going to come down. They were going to have quality time together. Genesis 3, verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. Where did that come from? 
No one had ever told him that when you sin, when you flagrantly disobey God's law, when you rebel against him, you run and hide. But somehow they knew. It was deep down in them, this sense that the guilt of their sin separated them from free, open access to God. Moving forward through time a little bit, for us as the people of God, our family history is kind of the shared social memory that we have of God's relationship with Israel. And so moving forward now to the book of Hebrews, they, sort of, they share that family history with us as the people of God that their, their ancestors, the ones who went before them, were the nation of Israel. And so the author of Hebrews addresses this issue, this issue of the barrier of sin guilt in, in our prayer by, by relating to that history that they understood if I could just take a quick moment to talk a little bit about the book of Hebrews, there's a lot that we don't know specifically about it. The author doesn't ever specifically identify himself or identify his audience, but there's a few things we can infer about the letter just from its content. It seems pretty clear that the, the recipients of the letter were actually a small church, so you know, maybe, maybe we could relate to them a little bit, but they were mostly probably uh, people who, who, who were Jewish. They were Jewish Christians or, if they weren't specifically Jewish, they had a very strong knowledge of the Jewish religion. So when the author writes this letter, he draws on that memory that they have, that context that they have of understanding how God relates to man um, from the Jewish background. Also, the letter tells us that although nobody in that church had died of, from the persecution in the Roman Empire, they were very familiar with what was going on throughout the empire to other churches. So we can sort of presume as we get to chapter 10 that the temptation this church was dealing with in the face of persecution and with the background of understanding that they had of the history of God's dealings with the, the nation of Israel, the temptation they faced was to return to Jewish practice. Uh, they would maybe do this because Judaism was afforded a protected status under Roman law that Christianity wasn't. They could be safe from some of the persecution but still have a means to atone for their sin that would grant them access to God. So the author is justified on drawing on this background in, in chapter 10, verse 1. And if you have your Bibles, would you turn there with me to Hebrews 10, verse 1, where the author builds on this background as he works towards this argument for the full sufficiency of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 10, verse 1, he writes, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year after year, make perfect those who draw near. If you were just a, 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 a quick note, if you were to read Leviticus 4, 5, and 6, you would just see the, just this huge code for these sacrificial systems that had to be continually repeated for the people, for individuals, for the nation, to cleanse the priests. All these sacrifices, the shedding of blood of, boats, of goats and bulls to atone for the sins of people that the author is writing here. He says, otherwise, referring to the sacrificial system, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But... In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So for the, the, the audience of this letter, they're considering returning to the system of making repeated animal sacrifices year after year to deal with sins 
sins that they know of, sins they don't know of, um, but as a way to deal with the sin that separates them from God. So they understood that they needed some system to grant them access into God's presence, and they knew that they needed access to God. Again, they had a good understanding of the history of God's relationship with mankind through the nation of Israel. So they drew on that history, going back to the garden, Adam and Eve walking in the presence of God. It was something that Adam and Eve needed, was to dwell in the presence of God. As they went forward throughout redemptive history, they saw Moses seeing God on Mount Sinai, an appointment that God had called Moses to for the good of the nation of Israel. The, The recipients of this letter were understanding that we as people need access to God's presence. Moving forward into the, to the era of the temple, they saw this system where once a year, one chosen priest, ceremonially cleansed, could pass through the inner veil into the holiest of holy places where God's presence sat on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant at great risk to that priest. But he had to do that for the people. So the, the recipients of this letter understood really two things. First of all, they understood that as people, we need access into the presence of God. And secondly, they understood that because of the the guilt, the burden of their sin, you can't just brazenly walk into God's presence. You couldn't just walk through that veil at any time during the year and talk to God as if he was your your homeboy. That wasn't how it worked. That, That burden of your sin would put your very life at risk. You would be knocked down dead if you did that. Going back again to the Old Testament background, a passage that the recipients of this letter may have been familiar with uh, is Isaiah chapter 1. And as I've been reading and thinking about this idea of God allowing us into his presence on the basis of uh, our sin guilt or our sin guilt preventing that access, this passage really spoke to me. In verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 1, God says through the prophet, "What what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. In verse 12, he says, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? So the church that this letter was written to is contemplating going back to this system. But as they should have heard in this passage, these words that God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, that sacrificial system wasn't, wasn't adequate for what they needed. When Isaiah was written, the, the people of Israel were observing that sacrificial system. They were cleansed outwardly. They were ceremonially clean. But the words God uses, he says, when you come to appear, appear before me, who has required this trampling of my courts? A few months ago, we preached about the absolute holiness of God, his perfect perfection. You don't just walk in there in, in a state of sinfulness uh, and, and, and talk to him. And the system of sacrifice was there to deal with the outward, the outward uh, sinfulness, to cleanse the people ceremonially. But as Isaiah is saying, even ceremonially clean, they were insulting God's presence by walking into his court. That system wasn't adequate. So as I continue to talk about entering into the presence of God this morning, I want you to think about two things. For one thing, again, I want your mind to go back to that whole history of Israel of the priests, of Moses, of Adam and Eve. That's, that's not distracting. I want you to think about this history of what it meant for people to enter into God's presence and what it took for their sin guilt to be dealt with. 
And now I want to think about in your own life, your prayer life. When I say enter into the presence of God, I want you to think prayer. When I talk about how the people throughout the history of Israel needed access to the presence of God, I want you to think about your prayer life and what it means for you with your sin guilt to walk into the presence of God. Moving on down through that first chapter of Isaiah, verse 15, God says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. To their credit, the recipients of of the letter to the Hebrews got the first part. They understood that they needed access to God. They understood that their sin guilt prevented them from gaining access to God. Some of you this morning share in that sense with them. You understand that you need access to God. You understand that the burden of your sin, your sin guilt prevents that access. Others of you, though, maybe find that sentiment hard to relate to. In speaking to people in our culture, I know that for a lot of us, it's hard to believe that we're truly sinful. Have you ever heard that before? I can think of numerous conversations with people sharing the gospel with them where the hardest part for them to come to accept is that they're sinful. I, I sort of a strongly worded analogy that I used in the first service. Do you think a pig knows that he's dirty? If he lives in a pig's, pigsty and he lives among other pigs, do you think he thinks of himself as dirty? And how much does it take to be the cleanest pig in the pig pen? Not very much. When you live in this world that we live in, in, in essence, I would argue that you live in a pig pen. We are surrounded by sinful people who have rejected God, Now, if you took that same pig out of the pig pen and you took him into Margaret Cruz's house, would he know he's dirty? Yes. He'd feel filthy in a clean place. In the same sense, as we get to know God and we get a grasp of what it means to be in his presence, as you spend time in his word, getting a sense of the scope of his holiness, his absolute perfection, the absoluteness of his moral standard, you become like a pig in the cleanest imaginable place. Some, some of you may struggle with feeling like you do so much good, and, and, and many of you do, but the superficial things that you do, the good that you do for your neighbors on your own, maybe the kind words that you say, the money that you give, the prestigious position you may hold in the culture around you is filthy rags. It's nothing to God when you stand before the absolute, utter perfection of His holiness. So if that's something that you're struggling with, getting your mind wrapped around the fact that you do not deserve to stand in the presence of God, go to his word. Spend some time considering his holiness. Stand in contrast to a perfect God and realize that you have no merit on your own to be heard by him. You haven't earned it. I don't care what you've done on your own. For the audience of the Hebrews, again, they kind of got that. They kind of understood, apparently, that their sin kept them from full free access to the, to the throne room of God. It was the next step that they had a hard time with. Even though they had understood and believed the gospel, they were re- tempted to return to an old system of dealing with their sin guilt. As I've talked about, they were for some reason drawn to the sacrificial system, the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats. I would imagine that most of you are not drawn to the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats. It's not a part of our language or our culture. But I would argue that for those of you who struggle 
with this feeling of your sin guilt preventing you from access to God, there are other coping mechanisms that you may revert to. I've seen them in my own life and in the people that I've talked to about this topic. A few specific ones that come to mind, and I guess I'm asking you to think about what does it look like in your life when this comes up for you, but a few maybe to sort of start the thinking process. Often I've found that people who do not feel comfortable with God have a hard time using his personal name. They have a hard time addressing him by the name of Jesus. They have a hard time calling him their father, and so they end up saying things like maybe the Almighty or the man upstairs. They use sort of cultural, um, these other cultural names that we use that put God at a distance, that refuse to look God in the eye the way I had a hard time doing with my dad when I knew there was this barrier between him and me. Maybe when you struggle with this, you find that you rush through your prayer, hoping that God won't think of what it is that stands between you and him, or hoping maybe you won't have to deal with it in your own heart. So your prayer time becomes this rushed thing where you don't get to just sit in and enjoy the presence of a loving father. Maybe like many, of our, many people in our culture, you look, for, you look for a stand-in. You look for an intermediary. As a chaplain in the army, I often find that when people find out that I'm, I'm clergy, they say things to me like, would you pray for me? Or would you, would you pray for this issue? In fact, this afternoon I was asked to come to an event to bless it. Well, I, I don't believe that there's any biblical argument that says that I have any more authority to pray for you than you do. We have equal standing before God if we stand under the shed blood of his son Jesus. But often when we have this un, unresolved sin guilt, our tendency is to look for an intermediary, a priest who can stand between us and God. Another common coping mechanism that, that I've found I deal with, Jesse and I have talked about and I've talked with other people, is we get stuck in this mode of confession and apology. It's like we get stuck looking at that sin area and we can't just look at Jesus in his fullness, in his glory. We're just consumed with dealing with this sin and so every time we get on our knees, it's the only thing we can pray about. And so your prayer, your prayer time becomes so much less than it could be or should be because all you're ever dealing with is yourself. You can't enjoy God. You can't spend that time interceding for others. So the problem with all of this garbage, the sacrificial system that the, the recipients of this letter were turning back to, these coping mechanisms that we get stuck on, all of this stuff, this whole syndrome, is that it comes from a place, I would argue, deep down in our hearts that says somehow, in some way, I can make myself clean enough to stand before a holy God. Somehow, if I do enough penance, somehow if I work hard enough on this sin area on, in my life, or somehow if I develop enough discipline in my prayer life, I can earn the merit, I can earn the right to stand before God. But if you read through the Old Testament, if you read the history of Israel, if you look at the whole history of, of, of God's, God's work throughout his creation, it all says, no, you can't. You cannot earn the right to stand before God. You cannot deal with your own sin guilt, no matter what you do. And so the author of Hebrews points us to a better way. He reminds his early readers and he reminds us of the only effective way that we can stand in God's presence. If you've still got your Bibles open to Hebrews 10, let's go down to verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19. This is the good news he says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence 
to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Yes, your sin separates you from God. You have no right to enter his presence on your own. But the glorious good news is that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross deals with once and for all the separation between you and God by fulfilling the debt incurred by your sin. This is the new and living way that is made for us through the curtain by Jesus' flesh. Think again back to the priest who once a year went into the Holy of Holies, ceremonially clean with that whole year's accumulation of of shed blood, of burnt offerings, this whole sin offering system. And once a year that priest went through that curtain with a bell on the corner of his robe, unsure if he would survive the experience. And now realize this new and living way that you have to boldly walk through that veil because the way has been paved for you by Jesus Christ who died on the cross. As Justin preached last week, Jesus is the high priest who has gone through that veil making a new and living way for us. His death satisfies that that deep down feeling in your heart that says, because of my sin, I can't stand before my father. Jesus dealt with that once for all. Anything beyond that, any, any system of penance, any system of works on your own to achieve right standing before God is nothing more than legalism and self-righteousness. Any effort on your own to earn an audience with God is a denial of the gospel that says Jesus did it all. If you take one thing from this sermon, I want it to be this. I want to tell you that you are never so righteous on your own that you deserve the right to be heard by God. If you are never so righteous on your own that you deserve the right to be heard by God, but you are also never so filthy in your own sin that the shed blood of Jesus cannot earn you an audience with God. You are never so filthy in your sin that Christ's atoning work on the cross does not merit your entrance into the throne room of God. This is the good news right there. So how do you take hold of this glorious gift, of these incredible privileges, this this gift that you can walk into the presence of God? It's simple. The gospel tells us that all it is is to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, believe that that he is Lord, be saved, be born again. If that sounds like gibberish to you, if it makes no sense what I just said, Find me, find one of the other pastors after the service. We would be thrilled to talk with you about what that means. It's something that you've got to do. If you've already done it, if you've believed that Jesus Christ is your Savior, then you know that this whole topic is one of these things in the Christian life that is easy to say but can be hard to do. So thankfully, the rest of these verses in Hebrews chapter 10 give us some practical advice, some practical instruction. So we're looking at verses 22 through 25 now, I'm just going to walk you through them and and show you the gifts that the author gives you to take a hold of when that feeling of guilt and dirtiness keeps you from standing before God the Father. 
In verse 22, the author exhorts that because we have this access through Jesus Christ and through his work, we should draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So if you find yourselves on your knees struggling to pray in the way that you feel you should, struggling to connect with God, struggling to have that conversation, the first thing I would challenge you to do is ask yourself, is it because of sin guilt? Is it because of feeling of my own filthiness? Is that what is keeping me from being able to pray? If it is, if that's what you identify, the first thing that I want you to know and take away is that God expects you to come to him not in a posture of timidity or fearfulness, not like that priest who walked through the veil with a bell on his robe and a rope tied around his ankle, unsure if he was going to survive. God wants you to come to him in boldness, from a posture of faith that believes the gospel is true for you. So let me ask you a question of you at this point. Has anyone here ever had a job where you had to sell on commission? I know at least, at least one guy. So I'm going to pick on Dave if it's okay. Dave sells Volkswagens. I hope this is okay. I owned a Jetta once. And let me tell you, I could not do Dave's job. The, the, the Volkswagen, I got it, it was cherry red. It had tinted windows. It had a spoiler. It had a sunroof. It was the coolest car I ever had at the time. Still pretty much the coolest car I ever had. I was so excited when I got it. But within about a month, every time I would turn on the headlights, the trunk lid would open. And when I opened the the, the sunroof, it would get stuck open. It got to the point where one night, Jesse and I were dating at the time. We went to McDonald's for a Sunday. And when we got back out to the car, it wouldn't start. Nothing. I turned the key, not even a click. If I had Dave's job, people would pay me to drive off the lot without a Volkswagen. I couldn't do it because I, I, I don't believe in Volkswagens. If you, if you go before God, sorry Dave, I hope I haven't, I hope I haven't ruined your, your, your career. But let me take this back to the text. God wants you to come before his throne from a position of boldness, a position that faithfully says the gospel is true, I believe it. You can't go to him not believing that the gospel is true for you. So take that first thing. If you identify that your sin guilt is preventing you from accessing God's full grace, you have to believe the gospel. That's the starting point. The next thing he says in verse 22, he talks about having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Skipping back to chapter 9, as he's setting up the context for this, uh, for this argument, The author of Hebrews Hebrews talks about the the ritual in the Old Testament where a defiled person was sprinkled with the ashes of a heifer to sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Again, this was a ritual that had to be repeated over and over and over again, this sprinkling with these ashes. It was a ritual that wasn't once for all. So they continually were going back to the same sins and dealing with them over and over again, but their hearts weren't changed by the ritual. They were expressing obedience to God by following this command And maybe they were dealing temporarily with that feeling of guilt in their heart, but their heart wasn't changing. Back in chapter 10, down at verse 26, the author describes someone who goes on sinning deliberately after receiving the word of truth. That's kind of a troubling passage for some people, Hebrews 10, 26. What he's talking about is someone who has just outright accepted the sin in their life, refuses to repent over it, refuses to deal with it as sin, and wants to either continue walking in the gospel or rejects the gospel outright. So obviously you don't want to be that person by, by, by any means. But the other side to that is you don't want to be a narcissist about your sin. And I think that's part of what's being talked about 
in verse 22. When you think back to that sprinkling of the ashes of the heifer, that was something that was done over and over, continually returning to the same sin. That's not what's being talked about here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, Godly grief brings about repentance, whereas worldly grief brings death. Godly grief goes to God and, and, and names the sin, repents of the sin, turns from the sin, renounces it, and is done with it. It moves on to new, better things. Worldly grief mourns the, grief, mourns the sin, but also fears being caught. It rushes to hide the sin. It finds ways to, to hang on to that sin and keep it a secret, not deal with it before God. Worldly grief doesn't renounce the sin and walk away from it, and that's what you're being called from here. So if you go before God and there is a nagging conscience, a nagging sense of guilt, deal with the sin, but move forward to joyous, good prayer. The next instruction that the author gives in verse 22 is that when you come to God, come with your body washed with pure water. Now there's a couple of different interpretations of this passage, but one of the prevailing ones is that the author is actually talking about Christian baptism. So take this as an encouragement that when you're dealing with it, when you're struggling with this burden, that the weight of your sin, your inadequacy, keeps you from, from access to God's goodness, to a, to a free and open prayer life. Remember your baptism. Like Martin Luther said, remember your baptism. Think back to a day when your faith was such that you stood before God and before the assembly of his saints and boldly proclaimed your union with Jesus Christ. You did not do that. Let me tell you, you did not call yourself to salvation. That was the work of God done on your behalf, and it was real. It is true, and you can hold on to that in your dark days when you feel filthy in your sin. Know and believe that you are born again. Let your baptism be a, a signpost in your background, in your, in your past, that you grab onto to be reminded of that. Lastly, in verses 24 and 25, the author charges his audience to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. He says, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. So let me ask you a question. Who are you meeting with for prayer? Who are you meeting with for prayer? Is there a time marked out in your day or even in your week when you're getting together with other believers to spend time praying with them? Or are you trying to do this on your own? Well, what happens when, you're, when your soul goes through a dark season like that and you have no one else to look to? I believe that what this author is telling us is that God gives us the, 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 the church. He gives us the body. He gives us brothers and sisters so that when we're going through those seasons, we look to them as we hear their prayers, as we hear that tone of boldness and faith in their prayers. We're reminded that the gospel is true, that you do have full and free access to God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Are you praying together as families? Are you praying together as a soul care community? As I, as I wrap up here, leaving you with, those, with those, uh, those instructions from the author to help you through those seasons where you feel the burden of guilt, I just want to leave you with these last words from this pa passage and ask that you really hold on to them in your heart. He says, Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's true. As we established, the sin in your life does bar you access to God. You have no right to stand before him on your own. But thanks be to God, because of the shed blood of Jesus, you now have full access 
to the goodness of God. And you are called to enter his throne room with boldness because Jesus did it all. It's done. It's done. There's no need for penance. There's no need for the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats. There's no need for anything more ever again except the shed blood of Jesus Christ which covers you. Amen. Would you join me in prayers? We just receive the goodness of that truth.